Harvard Divinity School. God is Red, 50th Anniversary Symposium. The Impact of God is Red on Native American Rights and Native American Religions, October 6, 2022. Okay, I think we can go ahead and get started for an event that's been in uh, careful planning for some time. Very excited that the evening has finally arrived. So good afternoon and welcome. Uh, my name is Joseph Gaughan. I'm a cultural psychologist. I'm a professor here at Harvard. And I'm up here because I'm the faculty director of the Harvard University Native American Program, which I've uh, done since 2019. I'm also a member or citizen of the Ani Grovant Tribal Nation of Fort Belknap in Montana. I want to start tonight by just opening with a land acknowledgement that Hunat worked in partnership with the Massachusetts Tribe of Ponkapog to develop. And that acknowledgement reads as follows. Harvard University is located on the traditional and ancestral land of the Massachusetts, the original inhabitants of what is now known as Boston and Cambridge. We pay respect to the people of the Massachusetts tribe, past and present, and honor the land itself, which remains sacred to the Massachusetts people. The Harvard University Native American Program, or HUNAP, is an inter-faculty initiative of Harvard University, and our mission is fourfold. First, education, to cultivate the development, achievement, and impact of American Indian, Alaska Native, Native Hawaiian, and other indigenous students to further the goals of the Harvard Charter of 1650 which committed the president and fellows of Harvard College to, quote, the education of the English and Indian youth of this country, unquote. The foundation is really this charter from 1650, so education is an important part of our fourfold mission. A second is community, to create and nurture a thriving community for Native American and indigenous people and their allies and supporters on campus. And we do that through these kinds of events, but also through the reception, which you are all invited to and we'll mention before we close out today. A third domain is scholarship, to promote university-wide engagement with Native American and indigenous issues in support of indigenous self-determination through relevant research, teaching, partnership, and exchange. And finally, inclusion, to expand the presence, visibility, and impact of persons of Native American and indigenous affiliation or descent on campus in a wide variety of roles. We're really grateful to be doing that tonight in this very event. So for these reasons and more, HUNAP has been delighted to collaborate with Professor Ann Browdy and the Harvard Divinity School in jointly sponsoring this 50th anniversary symposium dedicated to celebrating Vine Deloria Jr.'s influential book, God is Red. In addition to HUNAP and the Harvard Divinity School, other sponsors of this event include the Center for the Study of World Religions and the Canada Program of the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard University. Allow me now to introduce my colleague, Philip Deloria, who will convene the remainder of tonight's opening event. Phil Deloria is the Leverett Saltonstall Professor of History at Harvard University. His research and teaching focus on the social, cultural, and political histories of the relations among American Indian peoples and the United States, as well as the comparative and connective histories of indigenous peoples in a global context. His first book, Playing Indian, 1998, traced the tradition of white Indian play from the Boston Tea Party to the New Age movement, while his 2004 book, Indians in Unexpected Places, examined the ideologies surrounding Indian people in the early 20th century and the ways Native Americans challenged them through sports, travel, automobility, and film and musical performance. He's currently completing a project on American Indian visual arts of the mid 20th century and co-editing with Beth Piatote, I Heart Nixon, essays on the indigenous everyday. Phil, please.
Well, I want to extend the warmest possible welcome um, to everyone who's gathered here today for the God is Red 50th Anniversary Symposium. Um, uh, in particular, I'd like to greet those who are online. There's many, many of you, um, uh, and you're with us in spirit, if not in body, an important part of the community that will come together over the next day or so. Um, as we talk about, uh, talk about this book, God is Red. My co-convener, um, Ann Browdy, uh, is so sorry that she's unable to be here with us in person due to a recurrence of COVID um, infection. She's on day 15, uh, apparently, sort of uh, total. But she will be participating remotely via, um, via Zoom. The time, effort, and care that Ann has put into this event um, I think makes her absence even more keenly felt. The original idea for this symposium was her idea, uh, as has been much of the execution. So in that regard, uh, I want us all to say a big hearty thank you um, to Ann Browdy, um, also to the staff at the Divinity School, and in particular, the indefatigable Tracy Wall, who's sort of taken up a lot of the organizational labor. Here. So as many of you know, Vine Delory Jr. was my father. And uh, you know, so there's a, a kind of a joy for me here, as well as a sort of edible groove, frankly. <laughs> but in a good way, in a good way. And I actually trace that good way to 2019, to the 50th anniversary of his very first book, Custer Died for Your Sins. And there was a number of sort of celebrations, including a very large conference at the University of Colorado, um, where we gathered together to sort of think about that book. Uh, 2019 sent me back to study uh, Custer Died for Your Sins in a deep and serious way that I hadn't done in many, many years. In fact, I'm, I never had done that sort of deep and serious study of it, right? I had sort of read it, but, um, but not taken it as seriously as I should have. And, you know, what I discovered at that time was the complexities, I think, of that book, the complexities of my father's thought, the, um, the curious nature that he brought to all sorts of inquiries, his insistence on sort of heterodoxy and sort of resisting. There's a edited collection about him called uh, Destroying Dogma, which I think is a completely apt way of thinking you know, about his work. And now I, you know, I find myself a few years later, um, having spent the summer doing a, a similar kind of deep dive into God is Red and finding it to be every bit as complicated uh, a book as Custer Died for Your Sins. It's pointed me to several of his other books, including in particular The Metaphysics of Modern Existence, which is, I think, his most sort of deeply philosophical kind of book. And to the book that's one of his last books, The World We Used to Live In, in which he makes a case, um, I think a really interesting case, uh, an argument that's based upon multiple, multiple forms of evidence about the powers and the spiritual kinds of lives and worlds of medicine people, uh, you know, historically. And it's a, an argument that basically just piles up case after case after case. And you can sort of him, hear him thinking, like, do you believe me now? Well, let me tell you five more stories. Like, do you believe me now? Well, there's another 10. Like, do you believe me now? Well, there's more where that came from, right? Um, so it's an argument that is very much about sort of the possibilities for native spirituality, past, present, and future, um, you know, that's quite important, I think. Um, so we're going to do God is Red this time around. Um, over five sessions, we've been able to assemble an amazing roster of presenters and commentators, each of whom will take up specific themes relative to the book. 24 hours from now, we will all have, I think, a much richer sense uh, of God is Red, of its past history, its context, its arguments, and their consequences, um, and its possibilities five decades on as a possible roadmap for our futures. 
Uh, our first session is going to feature my, um, my good friend and mentor, Suzanne Schoenharja, who was also a very, very good friend of my father's. Um, and so without further ado, let me introduce um, Suzanne, and then she and I will engage in a, a bit of kind of back and forth conversation. Um, and after that, we will be bringing up uh, the presenters at our other uh, sessions for tomorrow to sort of pose a question, kind of one question to Suzanne, and in that way, hopefully kind of build a coherence across our, our day and a half um, worth of seminars. So Suzanne Harjo, Cheyenne, and uh, Holdogi Muskogee has been the most consistent, uh, consistently effective advocate for Native American rights over the last five decades. As executive director of the National Congress of American Indians from 1984 to 89 and president of the Morning Star Foundation, she has helped develop critical legislation affecting the lives of Native people across a tremendous, kind of a mind-blowingly tremendous spectrum from museum representation, repatriation of human remains, free practice of religion, access to sacred sites, land and treaty rights, political and economic development, among others. At NCAI, Suzanne Harjo led the final charge that produced two major pieces of legislation, the 1989 National Museum of the American Indian Act, which created NMAI out of the old New York Museum's collections, and established the repatriation guidelines for the entire Smithsonian Institution system. And as well as that, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act of 1990, which extended repatriation requirements to all museums receiving federal support and which has opened up an entirely new era in the relationships between Native peoples and American museums and the institutions, oftentimes in which they rest, including our own Harvard University. Suzanne Harjo served as a founding trustee of the NMAI and has maintained her commitment to that museum, serving as the guest curator for the acclaimed uh, exhibition, Nation to Nation, Treaties Between the United States and American Indian Nations, which is still um, up um, in, the, uh, in the DC Museum. She began as a poet, writer, radio broadcaster, then a newspaper colonist, an essayist, and now still a voice on social media. She continues to produce incisive political commentary. In 2014, President Barack Obama awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom in recognition of her long career of activism and advocacy. She's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the American Philosophical Society, and it has been my great honor to work with her and with our friend Robert Warrior. Uh, in, in, in a, a kind of sustained effort to recognize many, many more Native people in those kind of prestigious organizations. In 2014, here at the Harvard Divinity School, Suzanne Harjo delivered the Dudleyan Lecture on Natural Religion. It is the oldest endowed lectureship in North America, established in 1751 by Paul Dudley, Chief Justice of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And I think it's quite wonderful that she was here giving that lecture. Back then, she spoke on the topic, Saving Religion from Civilization which suggests the extent to which the conversation engendered by God is Red extends from the early 1970s through various markers and moments, such as Suzanne's speech, um, up to the present day. And on a more personal note, uh, Suzanne and my father, Vine Deloria Jr., spent decades exchanging views on politics, spirituality, and countless other topics, usually in late night phone calls. And if both she and I retire a little earlier these days, one of the great joys of my life has been our ability to continue on that tradition. And indeed, only a few nights ago, we spent two and a half hours in what was a lovely and moving conversation talking through some of the themes that might come up in our exchange tonight. We're going to try to speed it up a bit, uh, but I want you to know that we can only do so because we have already talked slowly with many long pauses for thought um, and reflection. 
And so I'm going to move over to that chair right now, and Suzanne's going to come up on the screen, we hope. Um, please make her welcome. It's the Sure SM58, the classic rock and roll mic, right? <laughs> I always feel happy when I've got one in my hand. That's right. Suzanne, it's so good to see you on the little monitor screen. It worked. Yay. <laughs> so I, I, I wonder, you know, in our conversation the other night, we started by talking about politics, and I wonder if we could maybe sort of begin, you know, begin there. For those who don't know the book well, uh, you should be aware there's three editions. Uh, with a 50th anniversary edition and an audiobook forthcoming, thanks to Fulcrum Press, which has been really wonderful about publishing my dad's work, and to his very good friend Bobby Bridger, who has been really interested in making his work accessible through um, audiobooks. But one of the things I think that's most notable about that first edition from 1973 is the ways that it reads not only as a serious critique of Christianity um, and a description at a somewhat general level of indigenous uh, spiritual kind of life, but also of uh, political work. So where the later books open with two chapters on the contemporary moment of the early 70s, this, the first edition opens up with three chapters um, on it. It includes the 20 points that were part of the um, Trail of Broken Treaties and the Native response and the government response and those kinds of things. So there's, um, there's a politics, I feel like, that's embedded in the first edition that maybe is not so much in the, in the second edition. And so as we move into the discussion of the book, I wonder, Suzanne, if you might ground us a little bit in the politics of the, the early 70s, you know, particularly as they pertain to these questions about religion and churches and native spiritual, spiritual practice. First, I, I want to say that everyone should have the good fortune of having Phil Deloria introduce them. Uh, you do it so beautifully and uh, I feel about 10 feet tall. So thank you very much for, for that lovely introduction. Uh, the 1970, late 1960s and early 1970s were killer. And I think everyone who was active at that time in whatever they were doing really understood how to make themselves four or five or six people and how to delegate and ask for help and think out loud with trusted friends and then know when to ask people to suit up for whatever was going to happen. Uh, and sometimes we didn't know. Uh, Vine one time called me from New York where he was in a meeting of the Museum of the American Indian, uh, they were the reform board of, of trustees after the crooked one was dissolved and, and the whole museum was taken into uh, uh, receivership by Louis Lefkowitz, the attorney general. And so Vine called and said, I really need backup. Um, here's my plan. I, it, I'm going to nominate you and this will be early in the morning. And can you come to New York? And I said, yeah, I could. He said, I'm gonna nominate you for the board. And so when you arrive and we figured out the timing that if I caught the first Eastern shuttle, I would be there at such and such a time. And this would already have happened. He said, if they put you on the board, 
then great, you'll be attending your first board meeting. If they don't, then we'll be holding a press conference about why these racist bigots wouldn't put you on the board. <laughs> so I, I got on East, the Eastern shuttle uh, in the morning and uh, not knowing what I was prepared for, but as I was raised by grandparents and parents, always be ready, always be prepared for anything and always um, kind of know your stuff, always understand that wh whatever you're called on to do, you're being called on to do because you can do it. So that's it. I mean, it's said in, in much more beautiful ways by other people, the readiness is all, uh, for example, but that's how things were. And Vine was a master at doing what our favorite um, oracle of choice, the I Ching, says, set armies marching. That once you have a plan, once you have an idea, once you have an agreement on a direction and a goal, then you set, you inform the people and get their agreement, and then you set armies marching. And he was excellent at doing all of that. People think of Vine as being an author, and, and he was, of course, brilliant author of so many books and editor, but also he was an engineer of, of um, Native policy. He, um, he and Hank Adams and I, I think, were probably the best ones at writing NCAI resolutions <laughs> uh, for decades. And um, you could sort of see our work in, uh, in NCAI resolutions that don't carry our name or anything, but it, it, there's a pretty consistent line. And that's a whole other set of books. That's an encyclopedia that um, taught Vine a lot when he was director, executive director of NCAI in the 60s, and taught Hank a lot when he was the, the special assistant to Vine, uh, as he was a war resistor, Vietnam War resistor in the army. Uh, he didn't resist going in the army, he was in the army, but he was assigned to NCAI and to Vine. <laughs> Uh, as a way of doing his service. And so he would write the um, community uh, paper for the local military base and then work with Vine on NCAI resolutions or position papers or other things. And uh, Hank was also a special projects. Um, he, Hank was a Cinnaboyne Sioux and who was raised uh, at Quinault in uh, so he's from Montana, raised uh, with the, you know, on the beautiful Pacific Northwest coast at um, uh, one of the garden spots of, of the universe, Quinault Nation. And then he was part of the Frank's Landing Indian community. And he was one of the um, early people working with the National Indian Youth Council. And one of the people who was involved with the 1963 March on Washington 
he and Mel Tom and, and others from NIYC. And they, uh, with, with um, Vine chiming in here and there, uh, and lots of other people, there were lots of other people involved in that 1963 March on Washington, lots of Native people, Martha Grass, uh, Ponca from Oklahoma, and Rose Crow Flies High, Mad Bear Anderson, uh, lots and lots of people. And uh, Hank met a lot of movie stars through that effort, and that's how he met Marlon Brando and arranged for him to uh, go out to do a fish-in protest in the Pacific Northwest at the Puyallup River in 1964. And, uh, and then he dragged Vine and me into writing script after script after script with Marlon Brando <laughs> about Indians. It was Indians 101, Indians this, Indians that. Um, the story of the Indian uh, wounded knee when we got to that point. But Marlon Brando was, was uh, out on the front line of the Northwest Indian fish uh, struggle as Vine was and as Hank was and lots of other people early, early on before it came to the attention of uh, of the world through the Academy Awards ceremony in the early 70s that he was interested in Native rights. And he really meant it. I mean, he was arrested at, at the protest at the uh, Fish Inn uh, with, with Native people, and he was arrested with an Episcopalian um, representative there. Uh, and I think they were the only two arrested. I don't think the native people were arrested. So Hank was really pivotal in all of uh, this kind of work and someone that, um, that Vine depended on a lot. And uh, Hank depended on Vine a lot. And they would call me and um, get me to suit up for things I didn't even know the outcome of or, or couldn't predict. And uh, um, I'll say that we, uh, uh, now that I've mentioned Marlon Brando, that uh, uh, Hank said when he went to his house, Marlon Brando wanted him to visit him. And he showed up his, at his house and um, in Hollywood. And Marlon Brando wanted to know what, what the fish thing was about. And so Hank explained it and explained it and explained it. And um, anyone who knew Hank Adams knows that he has a, a wonderful way of explaining everything in the world from the beginning. And uh, everyone always would say, not the beginning. <laughs> Start somewhere <laughs> in the middle or the right. end. Right. <laughs> and right. and he, he said that, um, that Brando was riveted on, on his every word. And Hank was saying, I'm doing so great here. I'm, I'm really telling the story just right and the intricacies of it. And he even posed at the fireplace and put his arm on the mantle of the fireplace, imagining that he was really striking a, a wonderful pose of someone who knew <laughs> everything there was about Pacific Northwest fisheries. And 
when he finished talking, Marlon said to him, would you mind if I fixed your teeth? <laughs> and this was this was the kind of thing that um, that Vine and Hank, myself, Billy Frank, a whole lot of people did for each other. Mm-hmm. We were the levelers for each other. We were the encouragers. Um, we were uh, the fixers, the, uh, the cleanup crew, the, uh, the cooks or whatever was needed. Uh, write this, do this, uh, let's go. And a lot of work got done. A lot of what people don't understand is movement work got done because we were all fast typers and we could um, write it, just type things up. And we knew how to mimeograph. We knew how to Xerox, the revolution of Xerox. So all of these things were hugely important skills. And, um, and we knew how to find the armies to set marching. Uh, many a time, uh, Vine and I would go into the bars in any given city that we happened to be in, uh, because there weren't Indian centers. There weren't uh, pl- gathering places. Uh, we have a really luxurious situation now where there are those places. But no, if you wanted to find the Native people you went into, that you asked for the worst part of town, and then you went there and asked what was the ruggedest bar in the, in the place. And I have vivid memories. I was the designated memory for much of that time. And um, I have vivid memories of, of a lot of those discussions that when I look at the book God is Red, or any number of books, but especially God is Red and Custer, um, and We Talk, You Listen, and the last one. Um, Sometimes it's hard for me to distinguish between what what was the germ of that particular idea. You know, a person, a group of people, a way of, of talking, how did that come about? And what I read in draft and what I heard your dad read to me so it's a very rich way that I look at a page of some of his books. And uh, I mean, I count myself so fortunate to uh, have been in that position. And the, I think the way we all got through all of that was just to understand that we were always being called on to do the impossible. And we had every confidence in each other and in ourselves that we could. Mm -hmm. It just didn't occur to us that we wouldn't be able to do it. Um, And, well, go ahead. 
Well, I was just going to say when we were talking the other night, you you drew a kind of through line. You used, you used two words that really were striking to me. One was um, defender, uh, defense, um, and the other was combat. <laughs> um, and, and you actually were, were willing to draw a kind of a straight line between you know his time in the Marines, which was very important to him, um, his sort of work at NCAI, and then his subsequent writing career, and then all of the politics, right? That there was a sort of uh, continuity there, uh, you know, across across time. And this feels to me like what you're describing um, is that is that particular context. I I truly think that 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 Vine's time in in Marine boot camp let alone the whole time in the Marines, in just getting through boot camp was his vision quest. That's where he battled the mountain lion, or that's where he flew with a red tail hawk, or that's where he did uh, something that was magic or something that was very practical uh, and that involved great concentration and strength and confidence. And because he was able to do that and get through it, he had enormous respect for everyone else who had been through it. And he would say, oh yeah, so-and-so, a Marine. And I knew what that meant. I mean, I, my dad was a military man. I understood uh, what that kind of comment meant. And it's very respectful. I mean, even though we were against the Vietnam War and all of that, it would, it, it, um, that was a point of view, that was a worldview that was not respecting or not respecting uh, the people who were prepared to defend and protect the people. So you I know, think you, that, go ahead. He always drew an invidious comparison, right, between the Marines and the Army. And he would say, you know, look, the Marines go for, will we'll pull their comrades out, you know, at the risk of their own death, and the Army will just leave them there. And I think he felt like the Marines was sort of a warrior society, you know, in that sense. There is a piece of writing that is sort of just sits within our family where he talks about a kind of a transcendent sort of experience while he was on patrol in boot camp. And, um, you know, I think you're quite right. To, it, 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 I think it's easy to sort of think like, oh, you know, pass through the Marines and all of this. But I, that, I think you're right, that boot camp experience for him of sort of coming into a robust physical and intellectual and sort of perhaps I think also even spiritual kind of confidence that, you know, he might not have had before was really, you know, was really quite transformative for him. You know, Suzanne, you also used a word just a minute ago that I, I wonder if we might um, kind of return to a bit of our conversation on Tuesday where you said something like this to me. You said, he believed in magic. He believed seriously. And that opened up all kinds of possibilities for him that were foreclosed to other people. Um, and you also sort of were thinking with me out loud about a kind of trajectory of that, right? About more and more over time. And it feels like that might be, uh, your reflection on that might be helpful for us in terms of thinking a bit about how God has read unfolded and its, its effects and consequences. Like Hank dr drug us into 
script writing with Marlon Brando and, and working in the Pacific Northwest and doing things with salmon and anadromous fish and the laws surrounding that and resolutions and writing and organizing people. And um, I drug us into repatriation, uh, which we didn't call, we just called it give them back or leave them alone or put them back or <laughs> leave them be or they're our, our ancestors, not yours. And how would you like your grandma to be dug up and so on. Uh, so from the 1960s uh, forward, uh, we worked on repatriation and, and, and sacred places protection um, and, and everything that goes with that, everything that that the genocidal maniacs tried to uh, kill off in us were the things we were working on to advance. We're working on cultural reclamation, uh, whether it was language revitalization or ancestor protection or water rights protection, whatever it was, or land land back, I love the land back movement. Uh, it's exactly right on target. Uh, and it, we were working on everything, land back, ancestors back, people back, kids back from boarding schools and um, put the people back where they belong and get them out of these uh, places where our returning Vietnam vet, native vets were saying our ancestors are prisoners of war in these museums and we've got to um, bring them home. We can't leave them there. And that was really a good watchword or phrase for all of us working in that area. So when I asked Fine, what, how do you, how, what do you do about this kind of sacred object that's in a museum, not a person. I wasn't asking about that. I was asking about what people wore when they were murdered. Well, we were thinking about repatriation and about sort of some of this, the, this was sort of a place where it's kind of an emergent spiritual sort of, you know, focus for him. I mean, there's a, the early sections of the book, there's a kind of highlighting of the summer of 1971, right? And 71 as being this very violent time. Um, but also um, the summer of 71, the discovery and the barrier, the unearthing of so many native remains everywhere, right? I mean, there's a section in there that's very, very focused on that, right? That the, those particular issues. I, I think he says something like in the summer of 71, every white person felt like they had to dig up an Indian, right? At that particular <laughs> moment. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And we were really gearing up for um, repatriation law whatever that meant, we weren't quite sure. And we didn't achieve it until the American Indian Religious Freedom Act in 1978. And then we had a repatriation. One of the whereas is, is about repatriation. And the first federal repatriations were done under ERFA. Um, when, when I first went to, I know where I was, when I first went to uh, Vine and ask him when he was director of NCAI. Uh, I, and to me, that was he was our most important Indian. That's what that meant to me. And so I went to him and said, How would I go about 
you know, protecting, getting back, doing the right thing by the people whose things are in, in this museum, which was the Museum of the American Indian, you know, never imagining that either one of us would be connected with that museum at some point or that collection. And, and I expected him, you know, I was ready to take mental notes. I was standing there with, with a baby on my hip and um, ready to receive, you know, the, the wisdom of, of this important Indian. And when I've written this, I've said, I, I don't know the answer to that or something to that effect. He actually said, beats the shit out of me. <laughs> he said, but I'll tell you what, I'll, um, I'll find out about it and I'll, I'll help you and uh, I'll have your back. And you can't ask for more than that from, from any person. Well, so we, we helped each other. We backed each other up. Um, we were sounding boards for each other. I, and I'm not just talking about myself and Vine. I was talking, I'm talking about a whole cadre of, of people uh, in it. It, the people we, the Cheyenne say that you take the people into battle that you would choose for friends and only them. And you only take people into battle who know how to make a peace, which is the other part of that that's so important. And, you know, to know when you've won or to know when you've lost or to know when you have an agreement. Uh, all of that is so important. So what we collectively were doing with each other um, in our families, in our, in our extended families, in our circles of friends uh, was to teach each other and learn from each other. Life skills kinds of things, um, tips and strategies. Uh, we've got to make a plan to get this done. This is what we need done. How do we get there? How do we do that? Oh, well, you just do this, 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 and this. Some people were good at saying that, and others were not, but could hear that that was a good thing and, and build on that. So there was, it was very much a, a we uh, culture and not at all a selfie culture. It, it, it was not uh, it, it, there. Most of the time, things that we wrote didn't even carry our names. Mm -hmm. And we were writing in other people's voices uh, for organizations and all of that. I'll tell you, if 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 Vine is credited with 30 books, I bet he has more than that in things that he wrote for other people and things that he, um, uh, I mean, big things, big things, little things, even the resolutions are very long and involved and detailed and uh, sourced and cited, uh, briefs almost. And sometimes, as you know, Phil, um, because you're very much like your father in this regard, uh, 
you help people and you end up doing some of their work, but your name doesn't go on it. And that's okay because the job was to help that person get over that hump or to help that person um, complete something that was important that they were unable to do. And, and I know you do that a lot. And um, everyone's mostly, people who know that about you are really grateful for it, as were so many of us grateful to your dad for all the work he did. I mean, talk about a James Brown kind of native person, the, the hardest working native in, in native business <laughs> was your dad. And um, uh, second, uh, only to Hank Adams, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, you're in that roster too, right at the top. So, I mean, it is, you know, I, I'm always stunned by, um, you know, I mean, you know, he'd play solitaire for an hour, uh, you know, before he went into his office to write. And, you know, he was addicted to watching The Godfather, which he probably saw, I don't know, 50, 60, 100 times, you know, and he had a few other films that were like that, that he watched over you know, and over again, and he was very social, you know, there were a lot of time people coming through the house. It's always kind of boggled my mind as I think about my own kind of writing, and I think I'm writing all the time, but like, yeah, I'm, well, I'm not even in the same universe. I think most of us are not in the same universe in terms of productivity, and, um, and I totally agree. There's the books, and then there's all of this sort of structure of articles and pieces that Robert Warrior and I were just talking about this that are, you know, that are out there. Um, I do have to tell you one thing, though. Uh, Marlon Brando at one point rented a, a house on Lummi Island, and my, we all went out, my brother and my dad and I went out there, and I fell off of his dock and uh, got, my, got completely wet. I went into the house, and I got to wear Marlon Brando's robe. Well, <laughs> but instead of like actually washing my clothes, he just threw them in the dryer. So I had this sort of saltwater-soaked dry clothes that I put back on after wearing Brando's robe around. He seems like he was everywhere, Brando, you know. But, but, but Suzanne, <laughs> let, me ask you, let me ask you one more sort of question, and then I think we'll bring up our panelists, and each of them will pose a question as well, and we can continue the conversation. And that, that, that question would, would be this. Um, in the foreword, here's the 30th anniversary. Here's the 1994 um, version, and here's my first edition, which comes from the Laramie uh, High School Library, <laughs> um, <laughs> the joys of eBay, um, it turns out. Um, so in the forward to the second edition, the 1994 edition, you know, he observes, I think kind of wistfully, um, or perhaps crankily, right, that the book was not widely reviewed. And I think this is true. When you go looking for reviews of Custer Died for Your Sins, the first thing you find is an Edward Abbey review in the New York Times. You know, and many, many other reviews after that. And when you go looking for this, basically you find two or three sort of small reviews in kind of kind of academic journals about ethnic studies, you know, or things like like that. So they're not really, and most of those reviews are negative um, also, you know, by the way. So, um, but yet, you know, in 1974, this was a kind of a, I think he found this deeply ironic, right? But in 1974, there's the famous Time Magazine report on this, sort of ecumenical poll of church leaders about shapers and shakers of the faith. And there he is on the list, right? A shaker and shaper, you know, of the faith, which he got a huge, you know, a huge kick out of. And of course, you know, in Indian country, God is read is sort of an article of faith in and of itself. Um, and here you are right at the center of politics and religion and spirituality. And, 
you know, so I, I wonder sort of how, you're, how you remember the impact of the book, um, and maybe particularly in that sort of decade of the 70s into the 80s, right, when it should have had its most substantial impact, and I think he felt like by 1994, he was kind of wondering where the impact was, but um, seems like it was there somehow. How, how did you, how do you remember that period? When, when Custer was published, every Native person had a copy. <laughs> and kept reading it and reading it and reading it and telling it and telling it and telling it. It became their stories, our stories. And then there was one time that was similar. And so it was a, a very accessible kind of thing. And Native people were just so happy that someone had put out something that made us uh, humans and funny and interesting and complicated. When God is Red came out for the Native people, what you'd hear a lot is people saying, Oh, he's really smart. Which reminds me that between the first edition and the second edition, he wanted to, he told me several times that he wanted to, uh, in, in effect, be intellectually accepted, accepted as a public intellectual. And so that people wouldn't think that he was just a jokester from the um, from Custer, and that he was uh, someone who could make an argument, who could um, uh, reason, could support the argument, and who could tear it apart. Now, most people, I think non-Native people, wanted the politics, but not the religion. They didn't want, unless it was the mystic Indian re religious kind of thing of, well, we took, uh, we had mushrooms over here and we saw this and we thought this and, and this happened. Or um, we saw a UFO. <laughs> And it landed in the Grand Canyon. And guess what? There were Native people there. So it, there was, um, he was being vilified for being smart by non-Indians with God is Red and for not being a mystic Indian at the same time that he was having visionary experiences uh, personally and, and group and collective experiences. And at the same time that he was understanding more and more and more about the relationship of people to place, the relationship of people to protocol, the relationship of people to ceremony. And, and that he was not an observer of that as he became 
more and more. And people think of him as a, a true unbeliever, but he was as much as an unbeliever as he was a true believer. He was a, um, a man of faith. And one of the things he had faith in was the native people, the collective wisdom of the people, the collective power of the people, the collective understandings of the people and the, and the resilience of the people. So having that as, as um, a guide, I think you, you can chart that transition from first edition to second edition and, and third. Um, I think he, well, also there was a, a clean break with, with the Episcopal church and that was huge. And it was, that was a, a political statement that had to do with boarding schools too, that had to do with things the church, you know, church, anyone's church had done to native peoples. And we found out more and more things. We, you know, someone would find a document or find a hidden uh, set of files. Um, we were constantly looking for things that were alluded to in footnotes and and um, in statements of people that people would make. And uh, that's how it, it was Vine who set me off on. Uh, finding the civilization regulations. He said, what were they? Why, why do they come up here and there? And why did they have to be withdrawn? And, um, and when I found all of that out, I realized how off most historians had been, never even considering them or looking at them as their tributaries rather than as the headwaters of, um, of a genocidal wave. So the, your, your father's own, I mean, we, no one knows everything at the beginning of their lives, right? No one knows everything in the middle of their lives. You, you evolve, you gain more knowledge, you gain more experience. Uh, your dad used to say, look at the old people. They say less and less and less because they realize how little time they have and how much more is is to be known. So they just listen and listen and listen. And once in a while, we'll say something. I thought that was so understanding. And that's where, where he ended. That's where he was. And God is read was his way of, of saying to, to the non-Native people, we have something to contribute to this field, to this theological examination uh, that is world-class. And you should recognize it because you're missing out on a bunch of stuff. And then two, he was such a contrary. I mean, he was like, 
a coyote in coyote's clothing. <laughs> you know, he really um, was happy to stick with the alien and the the hybrid Indian <laughs> and, and uh, native super beings. It in a way it, of of just tweaking his nose at people who would call anyone thinking anything out of the mainstream and out of the ordinary and out of the Judeo-Christian experience as kooky, as crazy, as um, idiotic, as not to be considered at all. So he was always pushing the boundaries of what's acceptable in society. And because he did, it, there were more things on the edge. I mean, what he was doing was being a, a good military strategist, if you will. He was pushing the parameters uh, of, of, the, of the field. And so that anything that was left toward the middle could be accepted, could be understood. And that's what a movement is about, any, a movement of anything that the, the people in the movement have to be constantly saying, um, we're, this is our position and it's ironclad. And it, you stake out your ground in the farthest um, uh, way you can, you go for the, 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 the most rights, whatever it, it is you're trying to get at or to, and then, what you're doing is making a way for everyone else to sound super reasonable, super nice. You're taking on the mantle of being the bad Indian for the white man's bad Indian, good Indian um, idea that's in a lot of people's minds. Still today, the good Indians and the bad Indians, the accept acceptable Indians and what, the ones who know how to use the right fork and the ones who don't. Uh, the ones who will take the uh, consultant fee and shut up, and the ones who won't. Uh, so there are lots of um, things that happen today that were happening in the 70s, that happening in the early 90s. Uh, but Vine was on a constant quest for not knowledge for himself to know, but knowledge for himself to be able to help protect and defend. Mm -hmm. I keep going back to that because um, he was a, a defender of the people. And the, when he did uh, the traditional knowledge series, that's what he was doing. And when he did his last book, that was of course what he was building toward from the very beginning, trying to find a way to let everyone who needed to know how to produce an evidence base for whatever it is you're doing. Um, I got an email today from uh, our friend Richard Leventhal at the University of Pennsylvania, um, who said he was going to try to tune in to this this discussion and um, uh, remembered fondly his 
uh, talks with, with and, and Richard Leventhal is an archeologist and anthropologist and used to be the head of the leading anthropology museum in the, in the country at UPenn, the Penn Museum. And he said, um, my favorite person behind Deloria and all, all our discussions about giants and that I would say, but where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? And he said, oh, you mean besides these newspaper accounts of people who were 18 feet tall and who were 15 feet tall? That's evidence. So that's what he was doing, was building an evidentiary base for all of us. And um, he would say, paper, they always want paper. You have to get paper. And if you want to know what they've done, look for the paper. And that's because they, they always tell on themselves because they never throw anything away. They'll hide it, but they won't throw it away. Right, right. Well, let me invite the um, panelists to come up and I'll do a, just a very quick little introductions because these are all scholars and teachers who deserve um, deep introductions, um, but those will happen tomorrow. Um, so tonight I'm just going to do a very basic thing. Robert Warrior is the Hall Distinguished Professor of American Literature and Culture at the University of Kansas and a citizen of the Osage Nation, the author of several books and countless articles. Uh, he was the founding president of the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association. His first book, Tribal Secrets, began a long intellectual history engagement with the thought and writing of, uh, of Vine Deloria. So Robert, welcome. Michael McNally. Uh, is professor and chair of the religion department at Carleton College. Uh, along with two other books, he's the author of Defend the Sacred, Native American Religious Freedom Beyond the First Amendment, for which he retooled himself with legal studies training in a kind of a sustained and deeply impressive way. Um, it is our pleasure to welcome Michael back to Harvard, where he took both an MDiv and a PhD in the study of religion. Susan Hill, uh, citizen of the Mohawk Nation and associate professor at the University of Toronto, where she directs the Center for Indigenous Studies. Her 2017 book, The Clay We Are Made Of, Haudenosaunee Land Tenure on the Grand River, won a slew of prizes uh, and reflects her long and abiding interest in Haudenosaunee knowledge, thought, and history. And last but certainly not least, Daniel Wildcat is a Yuchi member of the Muscogee Nation of Oklahoma and professor of Indigenous and American Indian Studies at Haskell Indian Nations University, where he's been a teacher and administrator for 36 years. Among his other writings is Power and Place, Indian Education in America, which he co-wrote with Vine Deloria Jr. So Robert, perhaps you could kick things off by uh, posing a, a question to Suzanne. We'll have four questions and then we'll oh, you know, uh, wrap things up. We've got uh, you know, 40, 40 some minutes to go. Yeah. I get to ask four questions? No, you get to ask oh. one question, my friend. <laughs> I've got 25 questions, Suzanne. And, you know, and part of this, I want to I wanna be, um, uh, first of all, I want to say that I know that giants travel the earth because you're one of them, and Vine was another of them. And so, you know, this is part of saying out of, out of just immense respect and admiration and marveling at, at the contributions uh, that we're discussing here. I mean, these are things, as Phil already said, that, that we can't do. And I think that there's something generational that, that happens in trying, to, in trying to make sense of all of this. There was a, a point at which I, I realized in, in getting to know Vine as somebody who was willing to you know, suffer me um, uh, being with him you know, and, and hanging out with him and learning from him uh, that 
that uh, that I wasn't trying to be what he was because it was a different moment in the nineteen late nineteen eighties when I got to know him. The one thing that I could do that 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 uh, was an example was to figure out what does it mean to serve to serve the greater good of, 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 of making the world better for Indian people. Anybody can do that, right? You don't have to be, you don't have to be native to try to ask that question to yourself and to say, how do I, how do I do something that would, that would further this agenda, which goes all the way back to the beginning of time to say, how do we, how do we do this? How do I do this in my generation? And it might be exactly the same. It may be shutting up when I want to say something. You know, it may be just listening when I think I have something to say. And, you know, I, I think every every moment that I spent saying something to Vine was a moment when I could have been listening to Vine saying something to me, you know. <laughs> at, at, at your bar at the Lion's Head, right, that that was your place. And that's where that's where he and I would meet in New York on a couple of occasions, three, four, five times. And, you know, some of the most important moments of my life. So I want to I want to reduce all of the questions I have down to this one. First of all, I think that there's something a bit punishing about having to be the person that's at the end of it all. You know, I mean that that say that you know Vine is gone, Hank is gone. You know, I mean I remember Hank telling me when I interviewed him for seven hours one time on the phone how hard it was for him, you know, to remember back to the people that he helped start NCAI with, not NCAI, sorry, um, NIYC with. That, that remembering, you know, being with them at the end of their lives, and he lived so much longer than that, right? And, and um, but thinking about, about the conflicts, I guess the, the thing that I, I, I always go back to, and, 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 and you brought it up for me again, was this moment, let's say, in around 1973, around the time of Wounded Knee, which is also the time of, of God is Red. So Vine wrote in a way that said, we're all doing something together. The NTCA, the National Tribal Chairman's Association, they're doing their work over here, which is really important in advocating for the rights of tribal governments. And those, of, those in the NCAI, are doing their work in Washington, D.C. to advocate for policy. People over here in the NIYC are out organizing people to be, you know, to, 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 to um, register to vote. And then we have the activist people here giving us this punch. He called it literally this punch that reminds people that we have power, that we can do things and be in their face. And representing all of this is somehow a... a this this grand moment when everybody's kind of working together even though they're doing things that are different. And yet you reminded me as you talked that that wasn't how everybody in that group saw other the NTCA people, the tribal council, tribal chairman tended to really not like the activists, right? I mean, there was a real tension there. Vine in God is Red indicates he doesn't, I mean, he thinks that the activist wing is... Un, it, it doesn't deserve its place at the front of the line, that the churches especially are kind of serving that agenda, mm -hmm. right? And so I, I, I wonder, I, I can never, I don't want to just say, well, Vine didn't know what he was doing. Obviously he did. And the one thing I come back to in this is what was the, what was the relationship that Vine had to 
that seems like an idealist statement to me, which he hated when I said that to him and I dropped it immediately to call him an idealist was for him <laughs> to say he wasn't a pragmatist. Somebody later said to me, every pragmatist is an idealist at some <laughs> level because you, you're never a pragmatist unless you actually believe that somehow your pragmatism is going to help you achieve your ideal. <laughs> right? That's a philosophical. I, I, I wish I'd have been able to say that to Vine, you know, when he was alive, just what he would have said. He would have like run circles around it, probably. But I just wonder in that moment, I guess that's the one question I would say. How did you all think about that? I mean, Vine reflects it in his writing, but 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 I still can't make sense of that. Because I, I see like in this, Phil and I have disagreed over so many things, you know. We've known each other since graduate school. And and I think that's productive and fruitful. If we were doing politics, it'd be different, right? Politics is when you say, hey, I disagree with you, but what are we trying to do here? We're trying to get this policy passed. We're trying to do this. We're trying to achieve this. But now if there's just a principle, an idea, then we disagree and we kind of duke it out. We fight it out. We say, God, you're so, how can you be so wrong? We're just doing intellectual sovereignty, I think. Right, exactly, you know. And, and how dare you steal my ideas in the midst of our argument here. But you're exactly right to do so, right? And so, but you don't always end up agreeing, right? And anyway, that's a jumble of ideas and things. And, and, and I wonder how you all made sense of that. Because I marvel at how much was achieved in the midst of it. And I know that the way I think about it is not necessarily right. Um, but anyway, I'd, I'd love to hear what you think of, of that jumble of, of ideas. Then and now and always, uh, we're all related and in some way. And it wasn't that you just did what your family wanted or you just did what your nation wanted or your clan or your society, uh, you did what was called for uh, on a national level. People were working on a national level, even if they didn't realize it, because everyone was doing networking, everyone was doing outreach, everyone was doing all of the things that people talked about later, uh, and trying to figure out how do, we, how do we achieve this? Who do we need to talk to? Um, the first place we went after our historic gathering on, on repatriation and, and where we envisioned the National Museum of the American Indian in 1967 at Bear Butte, um, our first, the first place we went to, uh, there were several teams that were sent out from there to uh, uh, go to different places to see if others wanted to be part of this coalition that we built that we had pledged ourselves to. And Zuni Pueblo was the first place we went. And that is because one of the, one of the um, Vietnam vets buddies, one of the Cheyenne's Vietnam vets buddies at that meeting at Bear Butte uh, was from Zuni. So that's why we went there. And from there, that developed a, a relationship with uh, Robert Lewis, who later became the, the head of the National Tribal Chairman's Association, and uh, NTCA, while they hated uh, activists and were, were um, 
activist was a dirty word and they were part of uh, the committee to reelect the president and part of, uh, they had an organization, Republican Indians for Nixon. Uh, while they were on that side of the politics, they also were from someplace and represented someplace. And the people that they were accountable to um, had as a first effort, the protection of the children, the protection of elderly and cultural reclamation. So, with if so we combined efforts to work on on eagle feather returns making um eagle feather possession not a crime for native people and that was uh, working with bob lewis because no one in ncai at that time was interested in that and you know everything is cyclical right so while there were things that that um, NTCA would not work with Hank Adams on, uh, Robert Lewis and I got along fine and worked on on many cultural rights issues, as did Vine with some of the the tribal leaders of that time, and Vine really knew how to do that because um, he. He said, you have to be, don't let people just be mad at each other. Don't let people just be mad at you. Just go up and shake their hand and treat them like a friend. And they'll forget that what they were mad at you about. But if you, then you don't speak with them, they're not going to speak with you and on and on. And I thought that was a really important uh, thing to know. I didn't know that until he said that. Um, even though I knew it about ceremony, I knew it about feast day, I knew it about this and that and the other thing and how you behave in families, but it's a different thing on the political scene to know that. And it's it all comes down to respect. So you you found you had to find the people who you could be friends with and could take into battle and make the peace with no matter what they were doing in their organization. I was, I backed up Joe Delacruz who took over in TCA and then dissolved it. Um, he was the youngest chairman elected in the country when he was doing that. And he was elected as head of NTCA um, at a time when they had a BIA telephone number. It was connected to the Bureau of Indian Affairs, an extension uh, phone. I mean, it wasn't even their telephone. It was kind of crazy. Um, but there were things that that Joe needed from NTCA, tribal leaders across the country, help with, with um, jurisdiction issues, help with the fishing rights struggle, help with on and on and on with, with uh, sovereignty recognitions and that he couldn't do through NCAI at a given time. Uh, when Vine was at NCAI, it was a golden era. 
Uh, it was less so after it. The, the reason I wanted to be executive director uh, of NCAI was uh, because mine had been. I mean, that that really is is the thing. And what so here's here's a, a the practical working vine. He said, um, I said, Joe Delacruz wants me to be director of NCAI stand for election and all of that. What do you think? And he said, don't do it. Don't do it. He said, you will, you will not survive. He said, I found myself underneath my desk sobbing because I knew what had to be done. And I knew that I wasn't up to the task. I couldn't do it. And he said, it will overwhelm you. So I thought about that and thought about that. And I went back to him and I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm glad to know that and your experience. I'm going to do it anyway. And he said, okay, great. Here's what we need to do. <laughs> <laughs> and he rattled off a list that in effect became uh, the agenda, the working agenda for the whole national Indian country. Uh, while while I was director was was that list that that he rattled off because we were the ones who um, pushed for Senator Noway to become chairman of the permanent re permanentized Senate Committee on Indian Affairs and he looked to uh, Vine Deloria and to Warren Lyons and myself in several meetings in New York and Washington to set his agenda. Uh, for what he would do as as uh, as chairman, and to back him up, and and we did that, and um, and that was a, a great partnership. So it, we were all in. Um, I think it, it it's just sort of like putting on a feast. You know, someone has an idea, let's put on a feast. And then that's the last you see of that person. <laughs> and, that, and everyone else, oh, okay, well, we know that it's this time and we have this many days. And so then people just start dividing themselves up and organizing and, and doing it because so-and-so who was respected um, wanted it done on this day and not any other day or certainly if you're talking about ceremony, then you know who's in charge of that. It's the person who's allowed to look at the sky and tell you, this is when we're going to do this. This is when we have to do this and where and when, uh, how, um, at whatever cost. But for practical organization, um, you have to be a person who's grown up in a certain way around community work, around fam extended family work, um, uh, where, where you know what needs to be done. You know where your place is. The power of place is in part knowing where you fit in. So no one has to tell you, um, go over and do that. You know that that has to be done. You look around, see something that has to be done, and you do it. That's the kind of 
when, when you operate that way and everything is part of the Indian rights movement where you move fast and are accountable to everyone and, but no one person or entity can, can stop you, can block you um, once everyone decides what to do, then that's, that's a powerful, powerful force if you have lots of people who have self-selected or been selected because they have those skills. Right, Joe Delacruz was um, not the person who caught the fish, but he was the person who convened meetings of NCAI, for example, when he was president. And you would always find him uh, in the serving line as, as the chairman of one of the host tribes, serving all the people uh, their food and chatting with everyone. And this, this salmon came from here and this came from here and these shells came from there. And uh, this was right here and come to our territory and see this. And uh, you're so close, come spend a week. <laughs> um, that, so he knew exactly where his place was. Vine always knew in his later years where his place was. And it was at the, it was a place he never sought or thought he would end up at. And that was at the very top of the mountain, as far as being looked up to, admired, loved, um, listened to, read. Uh, I, and he's such a contrarian. He, he would always, the, the worst thing that he would say about people, and he said this, I heard him say it about lots and lots of different people is, ah, he or she, that so-and-so, all they, they don't know anything they haven't read in a book. Mm -hmm. He was always looking for people who knew stuff that they hadn't read in a book, which is funny coming from someone who writes books. <laughs> you hope they're going to read your book and learn something. <laughs> One can only hope. You know, why don't we turn to a second question, Michael? Yeah, sure. Unless other, unless anyone else has a question that's following up on this, because mine moves in a slightly different direction. Um, well, it's good to be among all of you. It's amazing to be among these folks up here, and wonderful, uh, Suzanne, to listen to your voice and uh, hear your uh, stories. I, I had another question that I was going to ask, but um, something you said a bit earlier uh, gave me a pause. And you said that, you know, one of, um, in your view, one of the things that is going on in God is Red uh, is uh, putting out to uh, non-Native people how Native traditions have something you said, world-class, I loved how you put that, world-class to offer um, uh, the, in, the, in the space of religion and, and theology and, uh, you know, urgent and necessary that it be engaged. There's other times in the book where, um, and, and maybe this is more in the, the, the chapter that was added in 1992, um, where uh, it borders on arguing that Native traditions are kind of incommensurable with um, religion, Western religions. 
-hmm. And um, I, I wondered, I wondered what you thought about that tension in this book and, and that tension in uh, your work with Vine Deloria, um, the political work and the intellectual work. Mm -hmm. And of course, some of that is all the, the people, the wannabes, the academic wannabes, of which I might be one, uh, who um, you know, come into the space and, and take up necessary oxygen. Uh, uh, so I wonder what you thought of that. We've been forced into the religion box and to our detriment in law and in policy. Congress doesn't know how to deal with us as religious people. Uh, religion doesn't quite fit because while we're very conservative and have protocols and have ways of doing things, uh, we're also very flexible and, and uh, non-rigid. Uh, welcoming of, of new influences and we're not proselytizing uh, beings or we don't come from proselytizing uh, traditions. So, and, and we're not judging people who have different ideas about who they're related to and how they're how they relate to creation so the the contest between religion is something that that is is a very big deal it, it uh, was and is uh it's ongoing that you really have to think of it more as native spirituality. Uh, some people just want to call it our ways. So you hear lots and lots of people say native ways or Pueblo ways or Gila River ways. These are just our ways rather than trying to call it anything. And that um, we resisted in repatriation law a long time before calling it anything and settled on repatriation uh, in the 70s, but uh, for the purpose of, of the American Indian Religious Freedom Act. And then, but before that, we didn't have a name for it. And then we didn't know how to refer to what we were talking about. And before we got the, the lexicon of, the, of that universe changed, uh, and, and codified, uh, we would just say, we want our people and things back. Uh, we don't want them to be prisoners. We don't want them, you know, so everything was put them back or leave us alone or <laughs> leave them alone, let them go. Um, it was all about freedom and respect and, and the, the, the longer you look at anything as complex as native spirituality and ways of being in the world and protection of sacred places and, and uh, sacred objects and ancestors and uh, the way you look at language and what it tells you and uh, what it tells you about place and what it tells you about relationships among people and 
the relationship of people to, to other beings in the world and how we're supposed to be in, in proximity to them or juxtaposition to them and where our place is at any given time and where no one else can be at any given time except us, whoever us might be. So I think the more that the courts and the federal agencies, especially the Forest Service, which is the worst of the worst, uh, tried to undermine native spirituality and destroy ties between native peoples and places, important sacred places, um, or even unimportant sacred places, <laughs> places that, that people need for certain things. Um, the more setbacks we've had, the more most people working in the area have tried to make a distinction between religion and and spirituality and to look at our religions as the ones who really need that freedom from religion and who have everything to fear uh, from the establishment clause because we know what it is like for Christian religions to have franchises out on our people uh, federally sanctioned and appropriated franchises to go out and, and proselytize to our, our people who have our, many of whom have already been uh, so traumatized by other great federal projects and, and uh, Christian projects that um, they're kind of ready to accept almost anything if it seems to provide some sort of solace. Now you always have people who are ready to stand up and fight. Uh, one thing that Vine wanted to do, and I think it's really clear in, in the evolution of God is Red, is that he wanted to shore up, arm up the people who didn't think they could fight for themselves and who didn't like that way of being, who didn't want to be fighting. They wanted to be protected from the people who were trying to keep them from doing a ceremony or having to be an outlaw to, to get to a place you had to lift up a barbed wire um, and make a trench and, uh, or take down a no trespassing sign or, uh, you know, we were forced uh, in, in, in many cases to be outlaws and to be very, um, very cautious when it came to who we let in where. And you're talking about a lot of 1971 was a heck of a time. You're talking about Nixon's enemies list. The uh, all, all our veterans who are coming back and saying, 
this is a, this is a bad war that we're in and uh, horrible things and uh, all the grave digging that was being done, all the native people who were being murdered and maimed. And um, it was, um, it was terrible. I mean, there was, it, everything that we were at one of our lowest points in history in, in that period, 1971 and 72, uh, suffocating poverty and uh, we were at the mercy of warmongers and at the mercy of grave robbers and uh, developers and all of that. And anytime we looked for sanctuary in, in the church, whatever the church was, or in, um, in the law, or in, in just the ability to, to get around and do things and figure it out ourselves, we often did not have that kind of assistance. And that's one thing that Vine always railed against with the churches, of course, the Episcopal Church, but, but the churches generally, and the do-gooders. Mm -hmm. like, just, if you have money, give it to us. We know what to do. <laughs> we don't, don't try to make a favorite Indian of your church just because that's the one who's going to tell more Indian people to join. If you want to help Indian rights, then help us. And he made that a mission and did that and turned that same zeal toward whole professions, the anthropologists most notably, but also um, you know, other, other professions. Um, and while he had ideas that people thought were way out there, um, he also had a stack of evidence to support those ideas. Mm -hmm. And he went, it, you know, it was great that he went to law school and that he had that big win uh, under his belt as being part of the, the legal team that got off the first two people who were, who were accused of murdering the FBI agents in 1976, um, that they finally, uh, you know, the government finally put Leonard Peltier in prison and he's never gotten out. Um, but the first two people on the team that Vine was on were acquitted on the same evidence. Mm -hmm. And there was more evidence against them. So he picked up a lot of prosecutorial skills. He picked up a lot of um, a different kind of way of looking at things, having gone to law school and a way of saying, oh, I know how we can use the law to help with these religious freedom and establishment kinds of issues. I can Does tell that you, help? I, I can tell you that sort of sitting at the dinner table with him or worse, playing Monopoly with him 
Right. I mean, talk about prosecutorial. So we have a few minutes left. I, I wonder if maybe Sue and Dan can both sort of frame a question and then Suzanne, maybe perhaps you can sort of think of a response to both. Okay. Just in terms of where we're at in terms of time. Okay, sure. Um, Sue, so, uh, Dan. Yawa, <laughs> so much for your words, Suzanne. Um, you're always an inspiration to many of us. And so it's been really wonderful to get to hear you tonight. Um, with that, I'll be succinct. Um, in my experience, listening to you, listening to Vine, listening to many of the others up here, um, us younger folks, and I'm going to call myself a bit younger because I think I got a couple years on you guys. Um, <laughs> we're used to we're, we're used to marching orders. So I'm going to ask you for some marching orders for um, particularly for scholars and for Native public intellectuals. What do you think are the key things we ought to be focusing on um, in the coming years? That's a great question, Dan. So like, you're going to have to top that. <laughs> uh, she stole my question. What can I say? I mean, what can I say? <laughs> OK, so Suzanne, what do you think? What, where do we go? What are our marching orders? Or what are, well, what are Susan Hill's <laughs> marching orders? <laughs> <laughs> Well, first has to be the very thing that Dan Wildcat has just gotten the biggest uh, grant ever uh, to help figure out is uh, Native people struggling, uh, Native peoples who are negatively affected by climate crisis and how how to deal with that. That's um, and and so I think a lot of us can. Um, not relax our efforts because Dan's doing it, but know where to pitch in and sort of line up behind Dan and his effort to deal with the climate emergency. Uh, because if we've, it, we, we've just been dealing with Ian, mm -hmm. Ian just marched up the East Coast and um, was so awful and had such a terrible back end um, because of a two degree difference uh, in the Gulf waters, two degrees. And it caused that kind of devastation, that kind of wind uh, that blew everything away or as my friend, the late Vicky Santana used to say, the wind doesn't blow, it sucks. Isn't that something? Mm -hmm. uh, and I believe that entirely. So Ian sucks. And that's the first thing we have to, to attend to is the people who are in crisis because of, of uh, what the world is continuing to do to put us in crisis um, and to protect sacred places. We have to find ways to protect sacred places. And I so appreciate what the Biden-Harris administration is doing, which is trying to find any way they can to protect cultural areas, sacred sites, important landscapes, national parks, any way to protect sacred places. Uh, the, the, tuning into the 2030 initiatives and 
and trying to do everything that's possible with every agency that can so that you don't have the Forest Service because of its horrible policies, anti-Indian policies uh, and anti-Native sacred places policies uh, in litigation, setting policy for a whole administration mm -hmm. as they have for every administration uh, now since uh, the 1970s. Mm -hmm. uh, that it, it's directly traceable to the Forest Service and it continues to do it. So it drags uh, the Justice Department with it and then they um, uh, claim supremacy over every other department and say, well, Interior, you can't really say anything about sacred places. So, and, and they just make things up. It's like certain Supreme Court members just make things up. Mm -hmm. um, one, one thing they just made up was co-management, that right. co-management needs new legislation, that you can't have co-management without legislation. Well, that's a lie. I mean, that's just made up <laughs> stuff. Yeah, there are all sorts of co-management agreements, some of them in their third and fourth and fifth decade, and they're doing fine, thank you. And who? the reason I think they started uh, saying this about co-management is, was to keep the conversation away from land back. Because if you look at land back as 100% in co-management at best at 50, mm -hmm. then you're starting with half a loaf. And that's a neat trick, folks, but we're not buying it. Mm -hmm. Because the first option should be returning the land. Now, there are all sorts of reasons that people wouldn't want the land back or wouldn't want it back until it is reclaimed, until it's cleaned up, like Koholave. Um, the people didn't want Koholave returned immediately. They wanted the Navy to clean it up. To, it was being used as a bombing range and munitions dump. And there were, there was live, um, uh, there were live ordinances all over the, the sacred place. And, uh, by golly, they cleaned it up and everything started to thrive on the island and then it was returned. But that was a long process that started uh, under the American Indian Religious Freedom Act. And then um, uh, Senator Inoue championed a Koholave um, commission. And then, and we started out with the Department of Navy that had great leadership that would, they were the very best um, of all of the 50 plus agencies implementing the American Indian Religious Freedom Act, the Navy department was the best. Mm -hmm. they, Mitzi Wertheimer was the uh, undersecretary and she would um, call up and say, okay, we, we weighed the national interest against the Indian religious freedom interest and went with the Indians on this, in this missile base. And um, what's next? You know, what, what, what's our next thing to do? And we always had a list of things that they could do. So if we dealt with just those two issues, a lot of the other problems that we have would be dealt with because we're addressing the climate crisis and because we're 
protecting sacred places. You would have um, more culturally secured, secure native children and teenagers, young people, uh, because of the strengthening of cultures and them knowing their place in the world and sharing in the traditional knowledge. Everyone talks about traditional knowledge, but a lot of people think it's something that's out of their reach. Mm. And this is the time when people are, you know, when, when you protect a sacred place, when you revitalize a language, when you uh, keep, make sure that you have water in a, in a drought stricken place, or you know how to protect yourself from too much water, whatever the situation might be, you're, you're making it safe for, for the children. You're making it uh, accessible to the children. You're making it possible for young people to be much more secure in themselves and have many more optional images. There's the drunk in the gutter, there's the end of the trail, there's Tonto, there's, uh, mm -hmm. we have all sorts of different images now, and some are, are just full of life and verve and energy. And I mean, all you have to do is look at reservation dogs and see the, the brilliance that's in Indian country mm -hmm. in the writer's room alone and the directors and the actors. And um, where does that come from? That comes from a lot of years of trying to be the, trying to be the native people that we would want our ancestors to smile on. Suzanne, you couldn't have framed it any better for us as uh, concluding words, right? Aho, young warrior. Right? <laughs> <laughs> So I feel like that's your response to, to Sue's question, right? Uh, there's some. I just jump in really fast for those who won't be here to hear Dan tomorrow. That you know, it may not seem like a lot here at Harvard, but for a lot of us, twenty million dollars is real money. Oh man, <laughs> you know? yeah, it's yeah. huge, yeah, yeah. Dan. Yeah. You know exactly. Thank you. So just two little bits of business. Um, for those who will be joining us tomorrow, uh, we've got a full day in store. We start at 9 o'clock um, with a continental breakfast to lure you in starting <laughs> at 8.30. So come at 8.30, chat and munch, you know, a little bit of continental food, and then we'll start up at 9. Um, and beginning in just a very few minutes, uh, the Harvard University Native American program will be hosting a reception at the Harvard Faculty Club. It's at 20 Quincy Street, kind of next to the Art Museum and the Carpenter Center. I'm sure many of us will be walking over, so we'll kind of walk over in a, in a crew. It's maybe a 10-minute walk or so. Um, and it will be a perfect opportunity for us to continue the discussion. The one person who we won't be able to join in that, Suzanne, is you. And so can you all please join me in thanking Suzanne for being with us? Thank you, thank you, thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Suzanne, and thank all of you. And we'll see folks at the reception, and we'll see you tomorrow. Sponsors, Harvard Divinity School, Harvard University Native American Program, Center for the Study of World Religions, the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs. Copyright 2022, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.